1: It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
0: Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the
1: sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTay, And I'm Helen Thompson. This week we're staying with the ongoing situation in Israel and Gaza. There's obviously so much to cover with this conflict. We tried last week to give as much of an overview as possible about the history and the geopolitics that are shaping this conflict. This week we want to focus in on one aspect of that in particular, and that's the relationship between Israel and Iran that lies behind so much of this and which is causing sleepless nights in many global capitals.
1: So the question we're going to ask this week is, how did Iran versus Israel become the most dangerous conflict in the Middle East?
0: Good evening. A tearful Shah of Iran left his country today on a vacation from which he may never return.
1: University students demonstrating in Tehran, shouting death to the Shah, pledge allegiance to the Islamic movement of the Ayatollahs. The number killed in Tehran
0: since the beginning of the month is probably well over 100. So that has united with our enemies. Sadat knows well what is occurring south of Lebanon and with the Palestinians. He knows the crimes of Israel. Would you put Iran's army, one of the greatest in the world, into action against Israel? We are against Israel and uh, we will never help Israel. Iran is responsible force the setup of international terror. They stood here with a red marker to show the, the curse, a great curse, the curse of a nuclear Iran.
1: They introduced Iran as the one who is behind this operation. They made a mistake. We of course defend Palestinians, but those who say that non-Palestinians were behind what was done, they do not know Palestinians well.
0: So Helen as ever, we're going to go back to the start with this conflict. It's sort of very difficult to find where the start is. But what struck me in the reading of the, the history about this is how close Iran and Israel actually were, how friendly they were at the beginning following Israel's creation in 1948. I think Iran became the second Muslim majority country to recognize Israel as early as 1950. I mean, how did that happen?
1: If you look at it historically, you would say that they have some common geopolitical interest. And one of the interesting questions is we'll see as we run through this, particularly where Iran is concerned, is like, what is a matter of ideology and Islam now? Oh, and what yeah. is a matter of geopolitical calculation? Hmm. And if you say the position of Iran and Israel in the 1950s is neither of them wants pan-Arabism under Nasser yeah. from the G- Egyptian President, and they're both very wary about Soviet Union and Soviet influence in the Middle East. And that logic of geopolitical cooperation manifests then in the fact that Iran becomes the country in the Middle East that is willing to sell oil to Israel. Hmm. From the point of view of NASA, this is a big problem. In fact, if we go to the Six-Day War in 1967 and the moves that NASA makes before that, his primary strategic objective is to try to stop Iran being able to sell oil to Israel. Mm. So he blockades a, a body of water, I think we mentioned this last time, called the, the Straits uh, of Tehran, which essentially allows tankers to come out of the Persian Gulf through the Indian Ocean up through the Red Sea, Mm. and in on the body of water on the Israel side of the Sinai Peninsula. And he has been threatening to do this for some time. It goes back to the 1956 crisis, the Suez crisis. Israel has long made clear that it would regard blockade of that water as pretext for war and NASA blockade. What's interesting then about this is that it's entirely unsuccessful. As Mm. we know that 1967 war is a humiliation for the Arab states and Egypt in particular. And if we move then to 1973, so the ankh war, Iran doesn't participate in the embargo against the United States and Israel. It is willing to put the price up, but it's not willing to participate in the embargo. And we see increased cooperation during the 1970s, after the 1973 war between the Israeli military and Iran.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Just even looking at a map, I guess, it reminds me of the, the French relationship with Russia. You know, you have the two sides of a body of land who come together for the same geopolitical interests, wary of some block forming in the centre. And that's essentially what NASA was trying to create, an, a, an Arab unity that would have a chokehold on Israel. And obviously, as we covered last week, the Israelis just smashed through that in 67 and then really hold their gains in 73. And that's the situation that we have up until 79, right? And then everything changes in 79 with the revolution in Iran.
1: I mean, I think the really interesting thing when you look at it about 1979 is that everything changes and in some sense, everything doesn't change. Oh, right. yeah. Things stay in place. And I think that that's the, the paradox. This That paradox stays in place through like, the nineteen eighties. So if we if we go to January nineteen seventy nine, when the Shah of Iran left, so Mm -hmm. that's a month before the Ayatollah came back and took power, immediately from that point, official relations with Israel were broken off and Iran officially didn't sell oil, wasn't going to sell oil to Israel any longer. And from Israel's point of view, that is a complete and utter disaster on the oil side because they've just literally A few months before, been at Camp David signing the accords with Egypt Mm -hmm. about handing back those oil fields that we talked about last week on the Sinai Peninsula. Mm -hmm. So now that they're faced with the fact that where on earth is this oil going to come from – on the other hand, if you look all the way through the events of the Iranian Revolution for the rest of that year, and um, then into the Iran-Iraq War, mm-hmm. so Iraq attacks Iran on the, in September of 1980, you find that Iran has no more reliable help in a way through that war than from Israel.
0: Oh, really? So, but but I mean, but this is covert help, isn't it? This isn't this isn't overt alliance post seventy nine.
1: No, it's not an overt alliance at all. No, it's covert, but it's really quite significant. Israel is providing significant military equipment to Iran, often with actually, at least in the first part of the war, covert American consent. And they continue to do that even when American policy starts moving towards backing Iraq. Yeah. And I think that what we can see is that at this point, that Geopolitical logic that's been there from the start, which manifested on the Arab side around Egypt, now is on Iraq. Right. So they've both got common interests in opposing Iraq. And we can see that in a number of ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing that jumps out at me when you're speaking there, Helen, is that obviously one major act that wasn't at all covert at this time in 81 is Israel's strike on Saddam Hussein's Osirak nuclear reactor now this is such a pivotal moment in middle eastern so recent middle eastern history it's what is called the the begin doctrine where Israel will never allow one of its enemies to acquire nuclear weapons and it is prepared to strike out on its own without us support if it feels that it's an existential threat to the country Now, this is basically one of two doctrines as i understand it that guides israeli foreign policy one is nuclear opacity which is formulated by Ben Gurion to start with and this is in the 60s and this is essentially not admitting to having their own nuclear capability So you have this strange phrase where they say they will not be the first nation to introduce nuclear weapons into the Middle East. That's a kind of way of saying we won't be the first one to to use them. Oh, to admit it, yes. <laughs> Although I think they've come very close. Netanyahu has flirted with an admission. So that that is the first one. And that kind of formulates in the 60s. Interestingly enough, you're talking about their reliance on Iran for oil. In the 60s, they were reliant on the French for their defence relationship. And that shifts. Gaulle changes that in 68 over a conflict to do with Beirut that we don't need to get into. But the Israelis then become much more reliant on U.S. technology. And that would be a shift that will stick with us all the way till today.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting just on that because the Gaul in the sixty-seven war is the one Western country that sides with the Arab states Uh to avoid the oil embargo that Mm. the Saudis lead. So Israel had been very much in a strong French alliance earlier in the decade over the nuclear weapons question. That was kind of, in a way, the aftermath of the Suez Crisis, but that that really changes on the French side in 1967. So in that sense, in the 70s, you probably there's a closer Israel-Iran relationship than there is an Israel-French relationship.
0: And that's interesting then that it shifts in this period, in the, the 60s through to the 80s, you have a real shift in where Israel's dependencies... And their policies. And this Begin doctrine of striking out, that wasn't necessarily a given. This is the moment that that shifts Israeli foreign policy. And Begin is the first prime minister in Israeli history from the right. And he has come from this tradition, this revisionist Zionist history or tradition that Netanyahu would in time, come to inherit. But he is the first one to emerge in that. And he's the first one to strike out at Iraq. And and you would see this later on. We'll come to this later. But the second time this happens is on Syria, where Ehud Olmert strikes out in 2007 at the Assad nuclear reactor. Now, the Israelis won't even ad- admit to doing that because they don't want to embarrass Assad at the time into striking back. So this this game that's going on between covert action and, and overt military strikes is absolutely fascinating. And I didn't really know this, the covert support for Iran. I mean, it just seems extraordinary when you think about the relationship today.
1: Well, I think as well, this is where we get into the tension between the geopolitical logic that comes out of the conjunction of geography and history mm-hmm. in the Middle East and external enemies because remember we're still in the 1980s at the moment this is the cold war the soviet union is still um, part um, of this story and then these ideological questions around the iranian revolution and what you can see on the one side then is even in the middle of the 1980s is the israelis are hoping that there will be effectively regime change in Tehran. that the iranian revolution is a is a temporary interlude and that the underlying geopolitical logic which favors an Israel-Iran relationship will reassert itself. Yeah. So this is Yitzhak Rabin, the future Israeli prime minister, uh, in a press conference in 1987. He said, Iran is Israel's best friend, and we do not intend to change our position in relation with Tehran because Homini's regime will not last forever. <laughs> Amazing. But on, on the other side there is what's going on with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard. Yeah. So this is effectively a second army Mm -hmm. that is created in Iran in the wake um, of the uh, revolution. So you have Israel's cooperation with the Iranian army running through the Iranian National Army and then the separate organization, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard, whose interest is in exporting Mm -hmm. the Iranian Revolution including on the western side um, of the um, Persian Gulf. And it is going to be the organization that effectively organizes, supports Hezbollah in Lebanon. So that comes out of Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 1982, where they succeed, as I think we said last week, in expelling the Palestinian Liberation Organization, but they end up with Hezbollah. And that's very much tied to the... Islamic Revolution Guard, And there there's, no, there's going to be no cooperation.
0: Which It's very difficult, isn't it, for Western states to deal with an adversary that doesn't mirror onto your own. So when you have MI6 and CIA and you have a spy agency, somebody else's spy agency, well, then you know what to do. You know what the rules of the game are. But when they have some, an ideological uh, army or an ideological spy agency, then it becomes very difficult because you don't have a version of that. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, I was speaking to somebody about this the other day in relation to China. And they were saying that the Chinese Communist Party has its own international spy agency separate to the state. That's a one for another podcast. But it's very difficult to know because the Tory party doesn't have an international spy agency. <laughs> <I> <laughs> so, so this is a trouble where y- you're not facing an adversary that has the, the same system as you. And I hadn't appreciated quite how mm-hmm sort of parallel tract the relationship between Israel and Iran was until you spelled it out there, Helen. Because when you think about it today, you only see the history through these are just enemies that are almost implacable. You couldn't possibly think of any any two countries that were further apart.
1: No. And I think what we can see is that whilst the story about cooperation through the Iran-Iraq war is going to come to an end with the end of the Iran Iraq war in nineteen eighty eight and then essentially the end of the Cold War the year after, which takes the Soviet Union out of the picture. The story that's there in Lebanon in 1982 that ties the Iranian revolutionary guard, Lebanon, Hezbollah in Israel Mm -hmm. together. That's the world that we now very much live in. The world in which there are proxy wars between Iran and Israel. And they'll turn out to be not only just Lebanon, but from 2007, Hamas in Gaza, and also in the 2010 Syria.
0: Yeah, it's almost that. Helen is like a prelude to this future that we now live in and which came about at the time of a Cold War. It's like that wasn't quite a Cold War, that was some that was something else. That was a different type of conflict that the Israelis are going to have to learn to live with and they and they're still learning to live with it now. So the Israelis invade Lebanon in 82 and we covered a bit of this in the last episode and they stay there till 2000. Till 2000. I mean that's extraordinary. And then they leave and they haven't succeeded. And that is the dilemma that they're facing now, obviously, in Gaza. They don't want to do that. And Netanyahu has been quite cautious about getting bogged down in Gaza up until now. But things really change in the Middle East in uh, with the end of the Cold War and then the first Gulf War in uh, 1990. So tell us, how, how does that shake everything up?
1: Well, it's really about the sharp decline of Iraq as a regional right. power. And during... That war, I think it's in the early months of 1991. Iraq makes rocket attacks on Tel Aviv and other Israeli uh, cities, very much wanting to mobilise Arab opinion onto its side. Yeah, uh, and and that's the ploy about blockading Israel's access to oil in is Nasser's in 1967. This is Saddam Hussein's yeah. in 19. 19- ninety
0: one. SCUD missiles hit Tel Aviv in nineteen ninety one. You could see how that will completely shake a sense of national confidence in your own. It is, but at the same time
1: is that the Bush administration, so this is the George Bush senior administration, persuaded Israel not to retaliate. And in this sense, then Israel lets the United States take care of the well, the United States and its allies take care of the Iraq problem in, in that first Gulf War, but once Iraq is like decisively defeated, mm-hmm. it doesn't obviously remove Saddam Hussein from power, but much much weaker. Can't militarily like do un- do anything. Is under quite a fierce sanction regime. Doesn't even control its own all of its own territory because of the safe haven for the Kurds. What's really becomes left in the Middle East, I think, in terms of the the state rivalry, so not the Israeli Palestinian question, but the state rivalry is Israel Iran and yeah. that in a way is still in the Middle East
0: that we live in. Well, I guess that's logical as well, isn't it? Because if you, at the start of this episode, we're talking about a world where Egypt is the premier Arab power. And I mean, today we wouldn't possibly think of Egypt as the number one Arab power. We would think of Saudi Arabia. Mm. And so the fear of a United Arab bloc choking Israel is certainly logical, but
1: also then that Iran is providing the outlet as a non-Arab Middle Eastern state
0: against right, that. Yeah, and then by the end of this of period that we're talking about now, so we're in the we're in the nineties. The idea of a pan-Arab unity that is able to do that seems far less. So it's completely
1: shattered, and in a way, that means that Israel has to engage with the Palestinian peace right. process in the aftermath of that, because the Palestinian Liberation Organization has been discredited by backing Saddam when the Arab states have been opposed, because it's obviously the first Gulf War starts with Iraq's invasion of an Arab state in Kuwait. So Israel has to deal with a peace process with the Palestinians through the 90s. And that puts it on one track. But at the same time, is this Israel-Iran conflict starts to take, I think, its present shape in that decade.
0: Helen, I guess this makes the rise of Netanyahu at this period in the 90s make a lot more sense. As I mentioned earlier, he is the inheritor of this right-wing Zionism, this revisionist Zionism that traces its origins back all the way to uh, Jabotinsky in the 30s. And it's essentially, look, ultimately we can't rely on imperial powers whether it's britain in the 20s and 30s to give us what we want or america in later years we have to rely on ourselves to defend ourselves and we can't assume that we're going to have good relations with our arab neighbors there is a famous speech by moshi Dayan, uh, the defense minister in the in the 50s a eulogy to to someone who was murdered near gaza and he says, look they we took their land we are now cultivating their land they are going to hate us we have to deal with the fact that they are going to hate us we can't assume we're going to be able to get good relations and this is the idea that runs through this particular wing of uh, israeli thought and netanyahu is the is the inheritor of that through his father uh, ben zion netanyahu who was similarly hard line now in the 1990s what starts to grip the imagination of not just the figures on the israeli right but israeli politicians generally and for understandable reasons as we've discussed is the threat from iran because it's ideological it's funding hezbollah in the north and it is committed to israel's destruction and there's the moment where you can you capture this sense of sort of existential fear and threat when Netanyahu visits Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. I think it's in 1996. And this is when Netanyahu first becomes uh, prime minister. He only has three years uh, as prime minister when he first uh, takes the job. And he'd spent a decade out of power, actually, from 1999. And he goes to Bergen-Belsen and he says, look, Iran is Germany. It's 1939. And only this Germany is trying to get a nuclear weapon and it is facing at us. And it's very clear that that's the, the logic. We Not only do we not allow any Arab state, any neighboring adversary to get a nuclear weapon, we don't allow the one state that's got a genocidal intent towards us to get one. And that is the mindset then of Benjamin Netanyahu, who comes to power in, in, in 1996. And I think that's very instructive as you look ahead to where we are today.
1: It is. And I think that what we can see is that in a way that he, as you said, is kind of like a prelude to the future here. Mm. At the same time, though, the fact that he goes so early on this, when it's not even clear that Iran has got a nuclear program, like in 1996, it also means that he becomes somebody who the Americans in particular, certain American presidents, not least Obama, are going to say, basically manufactures this fear mm-hmm. about Iran as a way of not dealing with the Palestinian question. right? So what we can see then is, is that 1999, it is, is that that looks like when the Iran nuclear program begins, it becomes publicly very clear in the summer of 2002 that Iran has a, a nuclear program. But actually the second Iraq war, yeah. the United States and the allies it could muster for that bringing Saddam Hussein down in 2003, Actually, leads Iran to suspend its nuclear program. So I think when we look back now, we look to the second Iraq War and think that there's a story about Iran being the big beneficiary in the Middle East Mm -hmm. of that Iranian influence rising, which is true in the long term. Mm -hmm. But the immediate effect of it is for them to think if the, the Americans do that to the Iraqis, when it turns out the Iraqis didn't have any weapons of mass destruction and we do have a nuclear
0: program yes so obviously the same thing happened with Gaddafi, and he gave up his weapons of mass destruction program to sort of great acclaim but i guess the iranians then looked at what happened to Gaddafi and thought i'm not having any of that either that was later, yeah yeah, but the lesson's worth both both ways don't they they do
1: i think though where we should end this half is going back to our other thread which is the iranian revolutionary guard Mm. and the proxy wars because we see two things in the first years after The second Iraq War that really consequential here first is when Israel goes back into Lebanon in 2006 to try to destroy Hezbollah, mm-hmm. inflicting serious harm on Hezbollah, but it does not destroy it. No. And then in 2007 we have Hamas take power in Gaza, and so this strain in which Israel has got to deal with proxy wars with. Iran against really well-supported groups who are opposed, fundamentally opposed to Israel's uh, existence, and at the same time deal with the nuclear question, this is going to come really together into in the 2010s.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. gunfire, a takeover of Gaza by Hamas may be near. The latest sign, Hamas takes over this important security installation of the rival Fatah movement. At least 14 killed, 80 wounded in the battle. So we finished the last half, Helen, in 2007. And this is a fascinating moment. As you say, Hamas has come to power in Gaza. It had been elected, but the transfer of power hadn't happened and they'd just grabbed power in a pretty brutal and uh, violent way over uh, Fatah, the wing of the Palestinian movement, has its power base in the West Bank. And this had happened after Ariel Sharon, who had really dominated Israeli politics in this period, this decade where Netanyahu was out of power, when he had been prime minister and he had unilaterally withdrawn Israel from Gaza. Taken down Israeli settlements, and his policy was to build a wall around the West Bank, build a wall around Gaza, protect Israel, and try to have some kind of unilateral solution to this problem uh, rather than some kind of grand negotiated settlement. Ariel Sharon, one of these great moments in Middle Eastern histories with great contingencies, has a stroke in two thousand and six and never recovers from and This then leads to Netanyahu 's return three years later in 2009? Would he have ever come back if Sharon had had remained fit? I think that's an interesting question. But Netanyahu comes back in 2009. And this is the same time that Barack Obama takes power in the US, elected in 2008, becomes president in January 2009. These men then would clash over the next, what, eight years of Obama's presidency in a way that we I don't think we've ever seen an Israeli prime minister and a, an, an American president clash so openly over such a pivotal point of contention. Over the, it's all about the Iranian nuclear program and Obama's attempt to negotiate with Iran. Because we, as we mentioned it before, we had differences of opinion where, over Israelis striking the Iraqi nuclear program without the U.S. go-ahead about the Israelis having their own nuclear program with kennedy I'm um, kennedy not being particularly happy about it and coming to a conclusion where they just say they just don't say that they've got one so we've had tension before but not to this level this would be vicious and effectively netanyahu would go to the states and campaign openly against obama in congress
1: yeah i mean i think that one of the things that's really noticeable in this period and it will run through the trump presidency too is how bitterly partisan Mm -hmm. the israel issue becomes in american politics i think if we go back to the the beginning of the decade like as you were talking tom i think we can see several things first of all i think we have to understand that not immediately but certainly maybe by 2011 let's say then that's the year when obama announces the pivot. To, well, I think actually Hillary Clinton announces it, but the pivot to Asia. Yeah. The Obama's mindset about the Middle East is it is about to become much less important for the United States strategically. Yeah. The reason for that is because the United States isn't going to have to import so much oil from the Middle East. It's not going to have to import so much oil generally because the U.S. shale oil boom is taking place. So in Obama's initial mindset, that means he can, as promised in the 2008 election, get the American troops out yeah. of Iraq by the time of the next presidential election in 2012. He can put significant pressure on Iran via economic sanctions that wouldn't have been possible without shale oil because the Europeans can no longer say we can't tolerate the oil prices, the, the, the hiking oil prices that would come from sanctions against Iran as an exporter. And then when enough pressure has been put on the Iranian regime, they will come to the table, they will agree a nuclear deal, and there can be a new era of US-Iran relations. And I think that is starting place. And all through that is there is, if you like, fairly cool, I think in the end, erroneous on a number of fronts, geopolitical calculation. And so that's treating everybody in this as rational actors to some yeah, extent yeah. with ge- clear geopolitical interests. And there's Netanyahu saying, actually the Iranians aren't like that. He says, I think it's in, in 2010, you don't want a messianic apocalyptic cult controlling atomic bombs. And that <laughs> is what's happening in Iran. And he sees it. that Netanyahu, that, I mean by that, sees a, a Obama as treating Iran as a potentially normal state. And he says they're not like that.
0: They're not a normal state, yeah. Yeah, Now,
1: that's complicated, as we'll see. That's not straightforward, I think, actually, as a Netanyahu position. He's not entirely won over to the idea that there's no way in which there can be any kind of positive relationship between uh, Iran and Israel. If you take the Islamic regime out of power, We'll, we'll come to that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you've got a couple of moments then that are are really important. From where we are here in in 2009, Netanyahu and Obama have have come to power and have this core uh, disagreement over what to do about Iran. You get the Syrian war, the civil war begins in 2011. And this is obviously this nightmarish, chaotic quagmire that threatens to pull everybody in. Now, both Obama and Netanyahu, interestingly enough, kind of have a similarly realistic worldview about this. They don't, neither of them want to get pulled into uh, They both would
1: like Assad gone, but neither of them want to get embroiled, have to intervene militarily in Syria.
0: Yeah. And then Netanyahu's policy or his big fear at this point is that Hezbollah will use the chaos to be able to withdraw weapons into Lebanon, From which to then attack Israel. So you start to see Israeli air attacks into Syria at the height of this crisis, and they're striking out at it's it's actually both the Iranian, some Iranian generals, and Hezbollah. And I think I read that they hit, they had a hundred. Air assaults on Syria during this time, which is a massive,
1: and it goes on all the way. It should be said, it's going on to this day. It's not Israel attacks on Iranian positions in what they see as Iranian positions in Syria.
0: Yeah, and I, there was a moment that I was reading about, which came. They said it was like the closest point to war between Israel and Iran came at this point when the Israelis hit a a, a group that it that included Iranian military figures, generals. It was either on the border between Syria and Lebanon or or it was in Lebanon. This is the period where the Americans are certainly most uh, fearful that Netanyahu will authorize a strike on Iran directly to take out the Iranian nuclear facilities. So this is this period between 2009 and 2013, when you have a new prime minister who comes uh, to the fore, who's much more emollient and is more Western friendly, and that is the start of well. The I think it also
1: is because they are being put under a tremendous amount of economic pressure from that the, the, the sanctions actually do work.
0: Yeah, and the threat of the Israelis actually launching this. And I think what is fascinating is that you see these real differences of opinion within the Israeli political elite over what to do, and you start getting leaks. And actually, you've still got a lot of fallout over this and suggestions that a lot of the, some of the senior Israeli figures who were against a strike were leaking information directly to the Obama administration to essentially stop it happening. So this is the dynamic, I think, at play. You have an Israel that's unsure, and Obama desperately trying to keep a lid on it, not get sucked into Syria, stop Israel striking uh iran and then keep this idea of negotiations open
1: yeah and i think that we can see that Israeli politics is divided over the question Mm. and when we get to the nuclear deal itself which is struck in like 2015 netanyahu is, is extremely critical of it he i think he describes it as a stunning historical mistake yeah but the israeli security establishment is not necessarily enthusiastic, but it's is, is more cautiously supportive on it in the sense that they think it gives ten years of time
0: exactly, yeah,
1: to deal with some other questions as well. And at the same time, though, we can see that the nuclear deal very much divides the Republicans from the the Democrats, and the Republicans have got control of Congress in after the 2014 um, midterm elections, as you said. I think already Tom Ettenauer gets um, invited to speak and really to criticized the american president's yeah it's un- that is unprecedented in front of in front of the the us um, congress and then it becomes a really touchstone difference in the 2016 presidential election and it wouldn't have made any difference whether it would been trump as a republican candidate that year or anybody else Because yeah. if you were a democrat you were going to defend the iran nuclear deal if you're a republican you were going to oppose the iran nuclear deal
0: yeah, Netanyahu, just to stress how extraordinary this moment is, Netanyahu is invited to go and speak to a joint session of Congress without the president's approval and doesn't even go and see the president when he goes to Washington. that doesn't want Netanyahu to come and see him. So this is Netanyahu directly involving himself in American politics. And I think in a way that obviously causes consternation back home in Israel because if you become the Republican country... Then that leaves a certain fragility. If obviously if the Democrats come in, and so there was this bet that Netanyahu was placing on the Republican Party, and obviously it came good. But again, as you were saying, Helen, about Israel's relationship with Iran or policies throughout this period of time, it's not a hundred percent, is it? Because the the relationship with Obama. Is hap- there, there is a kind of, it's not covert, what's, what would be the right word? It's, there's a structural relationship between Israel and the United States on defense that continues through this period. So even though Obama and Netanyahu are butting heads over this particular issue, and it's dividing American politics and it's in dividing Israeli politics, Obama is signing defense deals with the Israelis for extraordinary amounts of, of money that are fundamentally important to Israel's defence interests. And it's interesting that Netanyahu signed a deal with Obama just before the end of his presidency because he was hedging his bets because he thought he'd get a better deal with Obama than he would under Hillary Clinton. (laughs) So he could have waited until Trump, but he didn't.
1: I think the other thing we should bring out about the Iran nuclear deal in in 2015, which we should say, actually, Vladimir Putin played a significant part Mm -hmm. in bringing about, because obviously it's not just a, a deal between the United States um, and Iran at all, involves Russia and China, Britain, France, Germany, is that one of the criticisms um, that is made of the deal on the Republican side is that it does absolutely nothing to constrain Iran's activities yeah. when it comes to the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Yeah, And so then if you then look at it through that narrative that we've like established and say, what then happens after? So just a few months after the deal is struck, which I think is July of uh, of 2015, the Russians intervene in Syria mm. militarily, which strengthens the Iranian position in Syria, strengthens Hezbollah's position um, in um, Syria. And that becomes part then of the attack line on the nuclear deal is that Iran has been emboldened and that with the oil sanctions having been removed, it will have more revenue, which can be used to finance these activities.
0: Yeah, we should say there are entirely legitimate concerns about the uh, Iranian nuclear deal, which is effectively Iran agrees to limit I- its production of enriched uranium and the ability to make uh, weapons grade material for a certain period of time. And I, I think that there and there are certain sunset clauses which cause a lot of concern in the United States and criticism where they agree to limit their production for, I think it's 10 years in, in one particular area and 15 years in another. So Netanyahu says, look, we're agreeing a deal that allows Iran to, to restart this program in a, after a certain period of time. But in the meantime, we're going to lift the sanctions on the Iranian regime, allow them to start making a lot more money through trade and through the sale of oil that they are then committed – to sending to our direct adversaries. So they'll get themselves wealthy over the next 10 years and then they can restart their program legitimately. And the other just striking thing I thought when you really dig into the detail of this deal, which has a lot of merit as well, it, there are a lot of people who say it, the inspectors came in and it was working, or that that is the the sales pitch anyway, is that its goal is that should Iran ignore it, break it, the West would have, or the West plus Russia, would have a year to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. That doesn't sound like a lot of time. You know, this is, you can see how we're really on the edge, even with the deal, of a fundamental kind of turning point in, well, in our history, really. Again, going back to Netanyahu to explain the concern from his perspective, and we've talked about how he's from this particular tradition in Israeli politics who thinks you can't rely on anybody else at, at, at the end, ultimately you can't rely on anybody else for your own security. It's not just about the Iranians getting a nuclear weapon and launching it at Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. It's about the protection that an, a weapon of that sort can provide for Hezbollah and Hamas into the north and south of Israel. So once that they have got a nuclear umbrella... Like the United States, then its proxies that it is going to continue supporting throughout that ten-year period are then free to start raining rockets down on Israel. Now the concern there is that it creates large parts of Israel, which is an extraordinarily small country, that becomes uninhabitable because they can just keep firing enough. And as we've seen during this war, there is a certain number. once you've fired, which becomes impossible for the Iron Dome or or subsequent Mm -hmm. weapon systems to be able to cope with. It can hit a certain number, but a thousand rockets coming over in a day can overwhelm a system. So it's not just a a simple fear of a nuclear strike that grips the Israeli imagination. It's something quite complex and actually entirely legitimate. I
1: think we should Think about that in the context then of what happens when Trump brings this to an end, because obviously Netanyahu plays a a a part in that. Mm. Some people see that as Trump responding to pressure from Netanyahu. As I recall, he gives a a sort of almost like a PowerPoint, isn't it? Yes, presentation where he sets out as he presents it evidence that Iran is breaking the terms of the agreement. Yep. In 2018, Trump ends it, and it's interesting that Trump can effectively end it by executive action because of the domestic political situation in the United States back in 2015. He it, it doesn't have congressional authority because Obama could never have got it through the
0: yeah, US it's the flip side. Senate. Yeah.
1: And that is why Trump can end it not on a whim, I don't mean it like that, but in the sense it's his, it becomes a presidential decision. Yeah, it didn't alone. have a
0: majority. Uh, Obama couldn't get a majority in the Senate for it. So he passed it another way, which required a blocking minority as a, or a supermajority to block it, and he was never going to get that. So Obama was able to get it through, but for that reason, Trump was able to end it.
1: And then we see it becoming a, a very big geopolitical question for the 2020 presidential Election. So if you listen to the things that Biden is saying on the foreign policy side during that campaign, it looks very much like his number one priority for changing something that Trump did is Iran. Biden's going to go further than Trump, the China side, but he comes into office saying it's really important that we establish a new Iran nuclear
0: deal. And he hasn't lived up to that at all. I mean, I think there's two thoughts that, that I had on, on this, Helen. One is that it's not clear what Trump is aiming for with his policy. Now, he's obviously got criticisms of the deal. And let's separate that. Trump's criticism of the deal from Republican Party's criticisms of the deal and their inspiration for opposing it. but. On the face of it, there are legitimate concerns. Now, Trump's policy, then formulated by John Bolton and others, was one of maximum pressure to essentially... Let's go back to the point where we just put... We just strangle the Iranian economy into the point where it just has to give up and gives us a better deal than the one we've got. I think that was effectively what the pol- the, the strategy was. Barmer's it was maximum
1: m- economic pressure.
0: Yeah. And there were signs that it, you know... It was having a dramatic effect on the Iranian economy. And then it was combined with this pressure, this military pressure. You remember that strike on Soleimani, the Iranian general, that Trump authorized. He's been called a monster, and he was a monster. And he's no longer a monster. He's dead. And that's a good thing for a lot of countries.
1: But interestingly, the context for that was Iran's response to the maximum economic pressure, which was the military attacks on shipping in the Gulf, Mm, Persian Gulf, in the summer of 2019. And then attacks, probably not by Iran directly, but by Iranian proxies, perhaps actually this time from Yemen, on really crucial Saudi oil facilities. I think we've mentioned this before. This is where the missile defense system that the Saudis had bought from the United States didn't work. Mm. And initially, there was no American response to that. And the Saudis were absolutely furious trump's response to that then becomes the assassination of Soleimani in january 2020 and he was the head of the iranian revolutionary guard so this is kind of like attacking iran on
0: that side yeah um, this was an extraordinary things. moment and actually didn't have as much of a blowback as a no, lot of people thought no if you thought. remember
1: is that this is the sort of when the pandemic has started in china i think it's early in the month in of january 2020 right, yeah. there's lots of concern being expressed by western columnists shall we say about world war 3 was about to arrive but one of the things that happened as i recall was then that in their response to the assassination that the iranians ended up shooting down accidentally a passenger plane yes in which there were a lot of iranians and so they were then set off another round of domestic protests in Iran. Because we should say that the other thing that we haven't talked about through this period, I think they actually start in 2009, with the Green Movement there, is the protests in Iran. So this idea, which obviously is quite a source of optimism at times, both in Washington and particularly in Israel, that there might actually be regime change. Yeah, you might
0: get what you long hoped for. The thing that struck me at the time, I remember very clearly, was the sense of American power, actually. It wasn't, obviously you had this guy in the White House who was unpredictable and you didn't know whether he was going to pull out of NATO one moment or kill an Iranian general the next. But underneath that character was this extraordinary kind of iron power. And I thought it was particularly revealed when in, in another moment in this Iranian conflict, which was when the... Americans, I think it was called, snapped back the sanctions on the Iranian regime as part of the Iran nuclear deal. So you can withdraw from it and then you can pull back the sanctions that you agreed to withdraw if you see the other side in breach. So you had this odd situation where even though the Americans had left the agreement, they then sanctioned Iran for not agreeing to the terms of the deal. Now, this left the British, Germans, French and Russians, the other signatories to the agreement, in a difficult position because they were desperately trying to keep the agreement alive in the hope, really, that Trump would lose power and the Democrats would revive it. So we were desperately trying to keep this thing alive. But the Americans revealed how powerful they were by imposing the sanctions and then making it impossible for the British, French, and Germans in particular to be able to bypass them. Now, we tried, interestingly, and we created some complicated mechanism where you could try and get round the American sanctions. But they didn't work because the Americans controlled the financial system. So very quickly it revealed that The extent of American power that Britain, France and Germany couldn't, we we couldn't buy, we had to fall into line with what Trump had decided.
1: It is. And I think the other thing that we should pull out here of the last year of Trump's presidency is that it was part of a bigger picture Mm. of his Middle East strategy. And I think actually it was a strategy and not just a set of tactics, or at least for his administration, should we say that it was, which was the pursuit of what came to be known as the Abraham Accords. Yeah. So that's the normalization of relations between some Arab states. It started with the United Arab Emirates and, and Bahrain with Israel, and now includes Morocco, I think, and Sudan as well. And that went hand in hand with this other really interesting decision that was made very late in the Trump presidency, which was to move Israel from, in terms of the way in which the American military command treats the world from the European area to what's called Central Command, yeah, which is the Middle East. Now, f- f- ever since the Central Command had been established, then Israel had been kept out of it because that meant that you didn't have to deal with the delicate question of Israel and the United States military allies in the Middle East. But Trump took the decision late in, I think very late in 2020, and then it was implemented in January 2021 when Biden came into office. So what we've seen since then is this period of really quite intense military cooperation, not just between US, the United States, and Israel, but between the United States, Israel, and Arab states, not least yeah. obviously the ones in the Abraham court, but then also the question of like Saudi Arabia, which as we know, one context for what has happened yeah. in terms of Hamas's attack has been the Hamas's war has been the fact that Saudi and Israel were pursuing the normalization of relations and if you then put this in a geopolitical logic and say well who's the enemy here for the United States Israel and the Arab states including Saudi Arabia obviously the answer is Iran
0: yeah yeah I mean I think I I was I was listening to uh, someone talk the other day and saying how disastrous Trump's foreign policy had been and and I thought it's just not really possible to make that case without talking about the abraham accords like this was a potentially and still is a potentially pivotal moment now we don't know whether the israeli hamas war that that potentially is about to un, un, unfold in, in gaza is going to derail that permanently but there was a brutal logic to that strategy that was being pursued in the Middle East, which was squeeze the Iranian regime as hard as you possibly can, reveal with brute force the degree of American power that still existed in the world by forcing the Europeans into line behind this project, strike out and assassinate Iranian generals when you on see the them guard, on sorry. the Revolutionary Guard, ignore the Palestinian issue. Almost altogether, and focus on building relations between Israel and and its Arab neighbours, including the prize Saudi Arabia, which looked quite close to being possible. It was a kind of brutally cynical policy, but it, there were signs of it having some real impact. Of and, and it would have been equivalent a Saudi deal with Israel to the Israeli deal with Egypt going all the way back, mm. wouldn't it?
1: I think what's really interesting and difficult to get our heads around really here is how we then explain what was going on with Iranian-Saudi apparent rapprochement, Mm. apparently led by or negotiated or partly at least negotiated by the Chinese. So this was the agreement to restore diplomatic relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia that had been broken in the middle of the previous decade and the logic of that obviously was that you had Saudi and actually the United Arab Emirates here as as well moving closer to not just then Iran but Iran China Russia yeah and then the question being like why are they pulling away from the United States or are they pulling away from the United States but that's really at odds with what's going on in this military cooperation which is running through 2022 it's running through the the first part uh, of this year where it looks like you have a set of states led by the united states treating iran as their uh, common enemy and then i think at the same time one of the interesting things that happened this year is you still have that thread that hope somewhere in israel including actually netanyahu himself that actually the Iranian regime is not a given yeah here. so in in april of this year the exiled son of the shah went to israel for holocaust remembrance day he met netanyahu he met the israeli president and he's holding out the hope that actually that what might be considered the under an underlying geopolitical relationship between iran and israel can come back into play if the regime changes. So he actually says in his the speech there, the biblical relationship we have with Israel was long before it became a state. Going back to this, it's detaching, trying to detach Iran from the events of the revolution of 1979. But it's clear at the same time, in this context which we're now in, so we're now in October of 1973, and we've had Hamas's devastating uh, attack, that that's not something that Israel can bring to play.
0: No. I just wonder whether it's kind of kaleidoscopic moment or period, to use that sort of Blair phrase after 2001, where you can see things are shifting. I can't see where they're shifting, but you can see how everything is in play or seems to be moving around. The United States is shifting its position in the Middle East, but not really able to withdraw itself. And it's shifting Israel into central command Netanyahu is trying to keep this relationship with Russia at the same time, which is fascinating, and not criticizing Russia during the the Ukraine Russia crisis. He's desperate to keep that relationship, and then you can imagine Russia and China. Do they want to see like a return to the of the Shah or to some kind of secular regime in Iran that might then become more pro Western or certainly pro Israeli? What kind of relationship would it have with the United States? You can see things are shifting here, but it seems very unclear where they're going to end up and this situation in gaza is a prime example of that because you could see previously where the relationship between israel and saudi arabia might get to and how a, a future trump presidency might uh, try and return to that but then it you've still got this of uh, the, these chaos engines in lebanon and gaza who are going to permanently try and stop that
1: well I think if we try to sort of sum up where we where things look, and obviously even by the time that this goes out tomorrow, things could change. Yeah. but if we look at it as the Americans have moved aircraft carriers into the Mediterranean, what are they doing? they're probably there to say to Iran, don't get involved in this mm-hmm. and don't let hezbollah get involved in mm-hmm. that this then becomes about. Israel versus Hamas in Gaza. So that tries to contain yeah. the Israel-Iranian proxy war to Gaza and doesn't let it get into Lebanon, further into Lebanon, we should say, mm-hmm. or indeed into into Syria. Um, but the risks, obviously, of contagion and that not working are, are really very considerable. We can see China moving more warships into the area too because it's not in China's interest for a state that is very important to providing it with oil now to be destabilized. Mm. And I think that we're just now, I think, in a very, very dangerous situation. We can see how the United States and China, for that matter, will want to to draw lines around the conflict to try to contain it but we can also see i think uh, how difficult that might prove in practice
0: yeah i mean the one state i'd be worried about there is russia obviously that doesn't really have an interest in this being contained my my hope would be that the united states is remains so powerful as we've discussed that its ability to contain this to deter others remains pretty formidable and and so maybe it is possible and the outlines of that world that we've been discussing will then rise to the surface again once this is through but i think that's a that's perhaps an overly optimistic understanding of where we are but i mean we're gonna have to keep turning back to this over the next few weeks because it's obviously a, a fast developing situation and we're only really touching the surface of in these two episodes so i think we're gonna leave it there for this week. Thanks so much for listening. If you are enjoying it, please do like and subscribe and share with your family and friends. As ever, this was These Times and it was produced by Ewan Daughtry. Oh, one more thing. Helen's book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, is out in paperback this Thursday, the 26th. It's got a new chapter centred around the war in Ukraine. So even if you've bought a copy of the book originally, you should go out and buy another copy. It's fantastic.